Well, I should start out by saying that is another snow day. That's two consecutive uh, snow days per Sunday. And we're way up here on the hillside where it is treacherous to come and go when it gets dark like this. So you folks get more cake because it's cake day. Yay. Uh, in fact, take the cake home with you. Don't, uh, I, I have no more cake days. Never. Isn't that sad? Aren't you? No, none of you are feeling sad. I was 192.7 pounds today, this morning. When I started this heart trouble, I was in, I was a strong 240. And so I'm only about eight to nine pounds away from making the West High wrestling team now. So that'll be cool. I'll see what I can do. I'm pretty confident that I can destroy a 17-year-old for at least eight seconds. That's the same as riding a bull, and that's all I'm after. See how it goes. Voice is a little bit uh, discouraging today, so we'll have to bear with me. And off we are. November the 24th, 2019, lecture discussion number 85, I hope. I think it's 85 at least. On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, and Ecclesiastes. Note my overt attempt to include Daniel, Revelation, and Ecclesiastes with Joel because it's absolutely appropriate. Revelation is obvious. Most people recognize Revelation has the, uh, the uh, Ancient of Days in chapters 1 through 3 and, of course, at the end of Revelation 19. Uh, and Daniel, obviously, Ancient of Days, that fits with Joel really well as well. Really well as well. Does that make any sense? So, but not many commentators would add Ecclesiastes. But as you know, maybe you know, I hope you know, Solomon emphasized in Ecclesiastes that the bodies of animals and humans returning, return to the dust from which the bodies were made, and the spirits of the breath of life return to him who gave those spirits. That's Ecclesiastes 12.7, Ecclesiastes 3.20-21. There's confusion about Ecclesiastes 3 with respect to animals, but it's not that difficult to figure out that it is consistent with Genesis. Especially when you understand that they, the spirits of the animals return to God, but not for accountability. That's what he is talking about in Gen- uh, Ecclesiastes 3. All that aside. All of you know also that the, the body going back to dust and the spirit going back to God, that is the reversing of Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, and 27. That is where he talks about creating the bodies and putting in the spirit of life. And so we're in a condition now, as you know, that we are waiting for the reversing of the reversing. In other words, what has happened to us is that when we die, the spirit goes back and the body goes to dust. That needs to be reversed to where it started in Genesis 2-7. And that is, of course, the great promise of Christ that he is the one that reverses the reversing. He's also the one that did it in the first place. So he obviously has the skills and the knowledge and the power to do it all. And he's declaring himself to be the God who did Genesis 2-7. So, God created the bodies, then in each one he breathed in the spirit of life. That is the order the body is created, and then the spirit of life is breathed in. That's critical information. People ask me all the time, is the inverse correct? Does the spirit leave before the body dies? Those are wonderful questions. At least we're thinking about them. God is the spirit of the breath of life. He actually is. When you say the spirit of the breath of life, Genesis 7, you are naming God because he is the spirit of the breath of life. And he gives the spirit of the breath of life. So he is the spirit and he gives the spirit. So what is the obvious question? What is the breath of life made of is answered there, isn't it? If he is that and he gives that, then he's doing what? That's where the definition of among in Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and Matthew 4 and Luke 4 is God among us. That answers that question once and for all, I hope. 
The Hebrew word of importance that is applied as it applies to animals in humanity is nephesh. N-E-P-H-E-S-H. And nephesh is translated differently throughout Genesis 1. It's called life in Genesis 1.20. Then it's called soul. Then it's called living creature. Living being. Living soul. It's all the same word. Genesis 2.7, when it applies to Adam, is the exact same word as it is given to the animals at 120, 121, 124, 128, Same exact word. And so what I have done in my horribly translated version is I've gone through and corrected it in every one of those verses. I've made it living soul or living being in each one of those. The totality of all of these descriptively phrased uh, verses, words, if you will, is that God has given consciousness. That's what it's talking about. Nephesh and consciousness are interchangeable. So the principles is life has to come from life. Life cannot come from non-life. Life only comes from life and see biological law of biogenesis as you know infinity has to come from infinity and consciousness has to come from consciousness living soul has to come from a living soul but that's consciousness from consciousness and he did not give his consciousness to the vegetation he gave vegetation for food to that which he gave consciousness And God said, Behold. God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of the tree of a tree yielding seed to you it shall be for food it doesn't have consciousness I recognize there are those today that believe that vegetation has consciousness and they're filing lawsuits on, on behalf of what they consider to be a conscious being and that is a theological error that they don't care about. We, the blindness is astonishing that's going on around us. The darkness that is sweeping. All of that, again, I think is very good signs. That, uh, And he says, comfort yourself with this condition. When you see the blindness and the darkness begin to sweep through. When the, the opposite, they'll call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. If anything in this country is happening, Isaiah 520, that's it. There's no ability to know good from evil. And this country is failing quickly. It's fantastically interesting. Nonetheless, I think it's a wonderful sign. Let me continue. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is consciousness. Nephesh, that's the word there. In which there is a living soul. Consciousness. I have given every green herb for food. And God saw everything he had made. And behold... Trying to emphasize, that's all I got now. Is a, I am. It's a you know three and three eighths inch vertical. Pretty incredible, I think. I can I can jump higher, but I have to fall down to do it. It's a, how it works. And God saw everything He had made, and behold, behold, it was very good. That's the first time He says very good. Now listen to the context of Genesis one twenty nine and thirty one. What's the context of that? Food, vegetation for food to those that have consciousness. So these two beholds follow immediately the declaration that Adam was made in the image and the likeness of the Elohim, the us. Behold, I have given every herb. Who's herb? Okay. That'd be herb. I've given every... Every green thing for food. Behold, it was very good... 
those beholds are intertwined with Adam being revealed to be in the image and likeness of God himself. So there's your order and there's your context. So why did God proclaim Adam to be in his image and likeness? It's a question we asked last week. Why did he say it out loud? What does it mean? What is his purpose here? And what is the difference between his image and his likeness? Notice what I'm doing. I am I am presenting the position that there is a distinction between image and likeness. So what is image? What is likeness? As I said last week, how come the angels don't have either one? And obviously he said it aloud so they would hear it. Because there aren't anybody else. Well, there's animals. You think the animals sat around and had a discussion on what the difference between image and likeness is? Probably not, though they heard the voice of God. And when they hear the voice of God, how do they respond? Mark 1. They're pretty excited about that. Let me just tell you that our dog trainers, I know a couple... You call your dog, and Christ calls your dog, Christ, the dog's going to Christ. That's how it works. The animals love their creator. That makes them different from us. Who heard God's announcement of Adam being in the likeness and the image of the creator? Answer that question. How exactly was Adam in both the image and the likeness? Or if you prefer asking the question in this way, what specific characteristic, either physical or mental, either body or nephesh, body or consciousness, body or living soul, did Adam demonstrate that made him in the image and likeness of God and the angels not? You see... To help you out, God describes David through Samuel. First Samuel thirteen fourteen. What is he? How does he describe David through Samuel? Samuel. There's a clue. He says David has a heart, having a heart, a heart after his own heart. Is that a consciousness statement? Is it a body statement, or is it both? God assigns these attributes to the heart that are astonishing. You've heard me say it. It interests me greatly because of my own particular uh, issues now. But we, we can tell that David has this said of him. And it's amazing. So it would be prudent, therefore, to do what? To compare Adam and David. See if they are similar. Who's the king? Who's the king? Adam or David? Ooh, the answer is both. They're both the king. Adam, the king of the organic Eden. David, the king of Israel. How many kings before David? Saul. David is the second king. How about Adam? He's the second king of Eden, Ezekiel 28. David is identified as having a heart that is like God's heart. What's that mean? Again, is it physical or is it behavioral? Is it both? By that I'm asking, does David think and respond like God thinks and responds? One of the things that uh, you'll hear people say in the theological profession is you have to think like Christ. Uh, That's hard to do because why? One, he's sinless. Two, he's infinite. Uh, So... But the purpose or the function of that, uh, if you will, that statement is to become Christ-like in your thinking process. The best way to do that is what? Study what he says. Read everything you can in his, in his book, if you will. Learn how he thinks. So the uh, questions begin to be this. Does David think and respond like God? In order to get this said of him, does God say of Steve, Steve has a heart like me? No, he doesn't. He said it of David. So what makes David different from me and like God? What made Adam different from me and like God? Because both of them have this tremendous honor given to them in Scripture. Now, again, David would think and respond like God, albeit in a very reduced level. He is a dim portrait. 
but we can get some information here. He is called this by Samuel, who got the information from God himself. And I submit that David is, in fact, like God. And the more I read about him, now he also is a murderer and a rapist. But David wept over Absalom. 2 Samuel 15.30 and 2 Samuel 18.33 through 19.1. His son is beautiful. David's son is beautiful, described as beautiful. That tells you immediately that you should consider what now in the discussion? Ezekiel 28, where the anointed cherub is described as beautiful. He falls because he is so infatuated with his beauty, Satan is. And David also loves Saul, who is described as what? Beautiful, mighty. He's the first king. 1 Samuel 9, 1 through 2. 1 Samuel 24. David spares the life of Saul how many times? Do you know? Okay, I will give you a hint. Twice. When I see Saul's life spared twice, I go where in the Bible? I start heading back to Genesis 3. That's absolutely correct. I should interject that Saul wept before David, 1 Samuel 24, 16. So you have Saul twice saved by David. 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26. And then who do I, whenever I talk about Saul, who do I have to talk about? That's correct, I have to talk about Saul. Because I have two Sauls, don't I? Oh, that's probably a coincidence. So I have to put the Sauls side by side and begin to think about Saul 1 and Saul 2. Now Saul 2 doesn't stay Saul, does he? He becomes renamed. He becomes redeemed. Both of them have this amazing thing. Saul, one, goes to his death obediently. He wasn't going to do it, but a woman talks him into doing it. And he gets up and goes to his death. That fascinates me. Where am I thinking? I have a man and a woman. And the woman talks the man into going to death. Now that isn't accurate, but I still can see the elements here. And I have to be careful because the story of Adam and the woman is far more complicated than that. But nonetheless, I see little vestiges, little shadows of it, if you will. Dimly, once again. I always ask the question, who's dimly? And I know that he's in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, 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 I think so. He's, what is he? Is he, a, is, he, is he a dwarf? Is that what he is? I should read that. What? He's a hobbit. Can you say dwarf or hobbit anymore? Can you say hobbit in public anymore without being impersonal? Is that an insult? Is your child, for example, very tiny? Is she a hobbit? Is she hobbit-like? <laughs> Just asking these things because the rules change every day now, don't they? You can't even talk anymore because somebody has changed the rules. And it's, it's a computer that does it somewhere. It isn't really people. All of this to say is that the Pharisee Saul, who clearly is related in Scripture, he's the New Testament Saul versus the Old Testament Saul. And, and your, Saul killed thousands and David killed thousands of thousands and, and the Pharisee Saul killed many, many people, but he's redeemed. He, be, he is renamed Apostle Paul, and therefore he has the same experiences as who? He has the same experience, that would be more correct, as who else? Here is who he is. He is in, he's a murderer. He becomes a redeemed apostle, so he is transformed and renamed. Who is he? Who else has been transformed and renamed? Who's the first person to be renamed in the Bible? Eve is. She's the woman. Her name is woman. Same name as Lori. When she's in trouble, I always say woman. It works every time, too. It's amazing. We do it in public every now and then, and it shocks people. They, can't, they don't know it's 
Well, I think it's a joke, but they don't know it's a joke, and so I'll yell at her, woman, do what I say. And of course, she makes, uh, never mind what she makes. <laughs> but people are stunned. They actually think it's real. And of course, I might think it's real occasionally. It's never been real. Uh, anyway, I have the woman renamed Eve. That, that makes her the mother of all who live as God defines life. She's the mother of all who live. So that means she's an example of life as God defines it. She's the woman who chose death, though deceived. And she's renamed Eve, renamed Eve because of what she said at her trial. And what she wore at her trial. And, of course, Jacob became Israel, didn't he? He's renamed. And, therefore, the most motivated of the motivated Bible students might want to compare the woman, Jacob, and Saul. Make them into a unit of study to see why this is done. And I think you would find it a fascinating subject and prepare yourself to accumulate all the naming scriptures. Where's the first naming? Not renaming, naming. That, of course, is Adam naming each and every individual animal. And being able to keep track of that. Yeah. Felicia's going, I know. Because you named all your children the same name to make it easy. That's what you did. George Foreman. So once you begin with Adam, why did Adam name these animals? Why did God have him do it? One, it showed tremendous intelligence and, and capability. But two, he wants to do something with this naming. And God has a name for us that gets us back into Revelation at some point. And so once you start having naming, where's the next naming in the Bible after Adam renames Eve? I have Adam naming animals, then I have him renaming Eve, or renaming the woman Eve, and then where's the next naming? Well, obviously it is in Genesis 4. It is Eve now names. And she names these sons, and I have the twin position here. She names these sons Cain and Abel. And Cain, the meaning of his name is receiving from God. That is what she did. I think Cain obviously is the firstborn. The order in the Bible would tell me that. And as soon as he comes out, she says his name is receiving from God. Cain. Acquisition. Eve said that Cain, uh, said of Cain that he was given by God to her. So he is a gift. An acquisition received from God. And I submit that she named him this because of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, that prophecy, the seed of the woman would prevail over the seed of the serpent. I think that she got this son, said this is what is I was to receive from God. This connects to Genesis 3.15 at my trial. Um, and therefore, I name him the given by God to save the world from death. Why would she think otherwise? It's only logical that she would assume that the, uh, the event would be immediately corrected. Of course, it hasn't been, has it? Abel comes probably relatively soon. And that upsets the, the, the theology of Eve at that point. In my view, Abel's name is refers to breath, vapor, some will say. Some translators had suggested vanity or nothingness. And vapor and nothingness would will, in fact, coexist well, comport with breath, the spirit of the breath of life, the unseen. So I believe that that is the most logical thing. So the first one is acquisition given by God. The second one is breath of the spirit of life. Vanity, some, as I said, some say vanity. That uh, is a wonderful word. That connects me to Ecclesiastes. So there's how Ecclesiastes starts to fit into this thing. 
All is vanity, Ecclesiastes 12, 8. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. An incredibly difficult, complex, mysterious truth that we will deal with next week, provided it doesn't snow us out again. That's something that has to be resolved. And, in, and the reason it has to be resolved, in my view, is that it's, it speaks of Abel, the breath of life. I'm not going to do it today. We'll do it soon, hopefully next week. But you know, soon is a relative term. For today, being that the focus has been lately the spirit of the breath of life. If you notice, I'm pounding that in, the spirit of the breath of life. I would obviously... I prefer to focus on this aspect of Abel's name, therefore, which, of course, then connects to Ecclesiastes 12.7. As you know, the spirit goes back to God. It is the spirit of the breath of life. Now, Hebrews 11.4 is necessary at this point. I put the stuff on the board that is new. If I go over it quickly, it's because I've put it on the board before. In case you folks on the internet want to know my methodology. Hebrews 11.4 is absolutely necessary in order to fully comprehend Genesis 4. So if you start getting into Genesis 4, then you have to go to Hebrews 11.4. But it's also necessary uh, to go to Genesis chapters 2 through 3, and particularly Genesis 3, 21 through 22. I should probably put this on there. So, here you are heading into the breath and the gift that is Genesis 4, and now you're still in Genesis 3 and Genesis 2, and, and I'm adding the Hebrews 11. It is my opinion, I have to say that more often, that Genesis chapters 1 through 5 are cause and effect. That may not make sense. Let me give you an example. In other words, Genesis 3.15 relates to Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.15 causes Genesis 3.16, and both of those are caused by Genesis 3.13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? That goes directly to Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Where she and the the serpent are in this conflict, if you will, that she resolves by choosing sin. She ate because she believed the satanic lie about the gift of consciousness. Because that's what the satanic lie is ultimately about, that there is no consciousness. Satan's assertion that consciousness was an illusion. Existence, therefore, is a deception and free will became impossible if the first two are true. And that, of course, is an attack on the unconsciousness, on the breath of life, saying effectively that the breath of life is not life. You don't have true consciousness. You don't have true consciousness. You don't have life. You have something that is temporal and fake. We have a child loose, for those of you in the vast internet audience. We have a child crawling around. So far, she's made four laps. When does she tire out? Never. The answer is never. (laughs) Faster, young lady, faster. She's very happy, isn't she? Okay. Why do I allow children to run free amok in the church? Believe it or not, I learned a long time ago that if you don't have any children in your church, you have a dead church. Once I realized that children were life and that I was not much life left, then it became a lot easier. Plus, my hearing's gone. So that's kind of, and I can't taste anything, and I have vitreous detachments in my eye. And I don't smell well. Well, I do smell bad. I guess I should say that. I smell badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know it, which is kind of cool. You go into public. 
Yeah, I have one person in the congregation that's awake, and it's a one-year-old. That's usually the case about 15 minutes in. Anyway, the woman ate because she believed the satanic lie about the gift of the spirit of the breath of life, which is consciousness, which is nephesh. Satan says nephesh is an illusion. There is no real nephesh. There's no existence. There's no free will. And it's an attack on the breath of life. Again, saying that it's not real life. What you have is automation and you don't know it. And you can find out if you just eat from this tree, you won't die because you're a robot. Ultimately, is how it breaks down. It's a lot more complicated than that, but I'm trying to make it simple. That's the cause, if you will. Genesis um, uh, 3, 1 through 6. That's the cause that, that goes to the naming of Cain and Abel. And with Genesis 3.13 and 3.16 being steps in that sequence. So she starts to name her kids because of, or kids or children, because of... Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, Cain now would connect to Genesis 3:15 and Abel to Genesis 2, 7, because one is named the gift, that's the seed of the woman, Genesis 3:15. The other one is named the breath, that's Genesis 2, 7. I hope that makes sense to somebody. Hebrews 11, 4 says this about Abel. It says that he was a man of faith and he is righteous. Seth. Now that might seem to be an inapplicable insertion to our subject. I'm bringing up Seth now. He's another son of Adam. Why is he called Seth? He obviously, Adam had a reason. What in Adam's history caused him to name Seth Seth? Why not Steve? He wasn't the perfect son, apparently. Huh? Mm-hmm. Actually, Seth and Adam have this relationship described in historical accounts, specifically Josephus, where he is described as very close to Seth, and they did marvelous things. But Seth is described in Genesis 5.3. And again, I say that Genesis 1 through 5 are a unit. And you have to look at them as a unit. It starts to change at Genesis 6. We go from Adam to Noah. So Genesis 1 through 5, uh, Seth in 5.3 is described as in the likeness and the image of Adam. So he obviously is somebody very special. If Adam is very special because he is in the likeness and the image of God and Seth is in the likeness and image of Adam, then you can see how that associates him to God. So uh, that contributes, that fact contributes great information to the meanings of Genesis 1.26 and Genesis 3.22. So that's how Seth fits in. There's that. Okay, let's go ahead and read Hebrews 11.4. Because it's amazing. Everything in the Bible is amazing when you find the amazing. It's hard to find amazing sometimes because you have to work at it and people don't like the work. Why did God make it hard? Because it has to be that way. That's why. Why does it have to be hard? Because it has to be hard. That's why. That may not make sense, but it actually does. If it's not hard, then it's what? Simple. And if it's simple, then it's what? Not complicated. If it's not complicated, it doesn't come from an omniscience. If it doesn't interconnect, it isn't, doesn't come from omniscience. 11.4 Hebrews. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. There's some great information. Through which he obtained witness and he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and through it he became dead still speaks. He is being dead still speaks. Sorry. And through it he is being dead still speaks. That's incredible. Abel offered the breath. Offered a more excellent sacrifice than the seed. The gift. 
and obtained a witness that he, the breath, Abel, was righteous. And I received through supper, Dave, if he exists. I point to an empty chair every time I say that, as you know. To bring some nebula, if you will, some ambiguity to it. I received a letter that supper day. Oh, in fact, I have it, don't I? Mercy, you guys. When did I do that? Oh, here it is. It's from Gabriel. Uh, it's a thoughtful letter from Gabriel. And he was curious about Cain and Abel. And he should be lauded for being curious about Cain and Abel. He's questioning why Abel's offering was more excellent than Cain's offering. Well, it obviously is. So how is it that it is? And that's the central question of Genesis 4, is that Abel's offering is, is excellent. It is more excellent. A more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Which, uh, again, that is the issue of Genesis 4. The purpose, the focus of Genesis 4, in fact. I am proposing, and I have for my entirety, the entirety of my so-called career, that Abel's sacrifice in type had the blood of Christ in it. The lamb slain in it, if you will. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb slain before time, therefore, was created, not created, installed. Probably would be better, but time is in fact a created entity. It comes from the mind of God. And it has a beginning. So, Abel's sacrifice has the type of the lamb's blood in it. The lamb that is slain at Genesis 3.21 because I had two things that affected Eve. What she wore at Genesis 3.15 and what she said at Genesis 3.13 and 14. And God slays a lamb at Genesis 3.21. That's the tunics that cover her. Obviously, I'm saying there's lambs everywhere. Now, I can prove the lambs are everywhere. Some people disagree with me. Um, and I, I have heard some very good and interesting positions, but they do not fit, in my opinion, as well as the lambs. I hope that becomes obvious <coughs> as I go along. Excuse me again. In other words, Genesis 4 is the effect of Genesis 3.21. Is it for me? It's probably Publishers Clearinghouse trying to find out where I'm at. And everyone here gets $1,000 a week for the rest of your life. Both of you. Is it really for me? It's not, is it? Tell me who it is so that I can put it over the entire word. Who is it? Oh, it's Troy. Hi, Troy. <laughs> I said hi, Troy. Now, I've learned that people can't hear you on the phone. That's a, a little joke there. Unless you're on... It is very quiet. Yeah. Obviously, it's snow day and we're relaxing a bit, huh? There's no visitors here today because of what? Yeah, that's right. A foot of snow up on the hillside. There's usually no visitors here. Oh, you're not a visitor. Give that up. There's no visitors here because usually there's just never any visitors here. We throw them out if we can. Either figuratively or literally. Okay. Genesis 4 is caused by Genesis 3.21. When those tunics, those lambs are slain... That causes Genesis 3, I'm sorry, that causes Genesis 4. It feeds into Genesis 4. Genesis 3 is the reference point. It's the foundation of Genesis 4. Again, because of the proximity, because of how Abel is described, because of how, what his name means, how Cain is described, and what his name means. As you know, Abel was a keeper of lambs. He's a shepherd. He is a shepherd a good shepherd, a righteous shepherd. Well, now we know who he is, don't we? It becomes obvious. And he's slain, isn't he? He's the slain good shepherd. Cain is a gardener. 
One's a shepherd, one's a gardener. He's a tiller of the now-cursed ground. Both Cain and Abel are doing something that Adam was intimately attached to. He was covered by a slain lamb, as was the woman Eve. Both of them are covered. It's an act of salvation. It is an act of, of God blessing them for what they did at the trial and what they wore at the trial. So Adam is attached to the lamb, and he is attached to the garden. He's a gardener. So Cain and Abel are doing something that Adam, again, intimately associated with. Now a million questions come flying out now. Why did Abel choose to be a shepherd? And Cain chose to be a gardener. Did Adam say, you're a shepherd and you're a gardener? Or did they have a free will decision? And who would get to pick first? Obviously, both of these again are associative to Adam. And these are the sons of Adam. Remember, Mary Magdalene doesn't seem like, this seems like a non sequitur. Mary Magdalene saw the good shepherd at the tomb and thought he was a gardener. So find your New Testament compliments. You might think again that Mary Magdalene is not logically descendant, but uh, be slow to complain about that. Ask this, whom does Mary Magdalene have commonality with in the Old Testament? She sees God the Creator. She's a woman. She thinks he's a gardener. Obviously, Abel chose to replicate Genesis 3.21, where the lambs were slain and put on his parents as a sign of salvation and blessing. He decides he's going to be the one that kills lambs. Why did he pick that? Do you think he needed the food? They don't eat food. There's no eating of animals at this time. That's a post-blood event. And you can make the case that we have all of these mutations and they started tearing each other to pieces. You can make the case that, that but for sure, uh, animals were not eaten at the time of Abel and Cain. When that began to happen in the animal kingdom and with humanity, that's, a, that's up to debate. But certainly it didn't happen here. So Adam, I'm sorry, Abel chooses to be the one who kills lambs after Genesis 3.21. He's memorializing Genesis 3.21. That's the removal and the replacement of the coverings, the, uh, the blood coverings, as you know. He's memorializing that. What does that remind you of? He's doing this as a memorial. I'll keep going. Cain, linked to Genesis 3.15, he brought fruit. I'm suggesting that he also referenced Genesis 3.21 and Genesis 3.7. What's he referencing in my opinion? Figs. Because they had fig coverings. Christ cursed one thing in all of the New Testament. A fig tree. It's probably not a coincidence. Gabriel... Uh, who wrote that uh, gentleman that wrote the letter, he, he said this. I should probably read it because he said it in a... Uh, he said it extremely well. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, he said... Uh, where I get stuck thinking about it is that if the problem with Cain's offering is lack of blood, then I seem forced to either say that Cain should have been tending sheep and not tending gardens. Um, excellent question. Let's see if I can answer it. So Gabriel said, listen, if there's something wrong with Cain's offering, then that makes him dependent on Abel. Does that make sense? And that Abel's offering was respected. God says Abel's offering was respected. 
Cain's offering was not respected. So, therefore, everyone who had to have a lamb, where did they go to get it? At Abel's lamb store, right? That's what Gabriel is trying to point out. How many people are here? I have the position, as you know, I'll get to that in a minute, that uh, there's 33, this is 33 years that this happens. So these two men are 33 years old. Uh, it's, I, if I'm right, and, and God, this is not the first offering. It's the 33rd offering. The good shepherd, therefore, Abel, is slain at age 33. Abel slain at 33 would comply with the pattern of Christ, wouldn't he? Why was Christ, why did Christ choose 33? Not 40, not 50. He chooses 33. He has a three year. You have to answer that question. Abel slain at 33 again would fit with that. And I would think that the typology would prevail here. But it's the, it's, it, it, this is not the first offering. This is the first time that Cain submitted an offering that was not respected by God. So why? Why does he change? Has to have something to do with Genesis 3.15. How many free lambs do you think Cain accepted from Abel prior to this? I would say you have to decide when Abel became a shepherd that kills lambs and do do the math from there. Notice how I worded that. I said, how many free lambs? How long had Abel been supplying free lambs, killing an innocent lamb? He's the only one killing animals, I believe, at this point. And he's killing them for this event. What day is it happening on? What feast day do you suppose the lamb is being slain on? Where can you find information on what day it is? Yes, you're all mouthing the correct words because you are so smart. Far smarter than the internet. Yeah. (laughs) They don't think so, I should tell you, right off the bat. And we'll get to that later. So let's ask the obvious question now. How much sadness is contained in the killing of these animals that have been what? Are they still being named by Adam? Would Abel name every single animal? Do you do that? How much sadness is in here? There's a tremendous amount of mourning and sadness here, isn't there? And you should know that God weeps. And you know that David weeps. Did Abel weep? Did Adam weep at 322? Those are lambs. If there are two lambs or one, that's still up to contest. But if there's two of them, those are lambs that he what? He named them. And they're being killed to cover him with blood. How much weeping is there? Did God weep when he killed the lambs? Tremendous amount of sadness here is my point. Abel had been supplying free lambs. He'd been killing an innocent lamb. Killing innocent lambs. And his witness and his witness was righteous. God testifies of his gifts and through it he is still he's being dead. He still speaks. What he did, even though he's dead, is still a testimony that God calls a great witness, a righteous man of faith. Abel was killing lambs. Why? Well, obviously he's killing them because of Genesis 3.22. And we can see why he's doing it because he understands why it was done in Genesis 3.22. Does that make sense? We have more information. We can learn why it was done because we have Exodus 12.21, don't we? And I know he's killing the lambs because Genesis 4.4 says what? He brought the lamb and he brought what? The fat of the lamb. How do you get the fat out? Ask me. I'm now an expert. 
takes a while and you eat nothing that is any good ever. Ah, no one really laughed at that joke, let the record show. Genesis 4.4, the fat is separated from the lamb and that is a dead lamb, is it not? Exodus 12, then Moses called for the elders of Israel, pick out and take lambs for yourself according to your families and kill the Passover lambs. That's Genesis 4. That's Genesis 3. How many of Israel, how many of them are there? How many lambs died that day? Exodus 12:21. How many of Israel did not have given to them a Passover lamb? Who had to pay for a Passover lamb? The answer is nobody pays for the Passover lamb, do they? The blood can't be bought. I'm going to say to you the first, now this is a difficult statement, Passover lamb in quotation marks was at Genesis 3.21 when he covered Adam and Eve and took off the fig. That's the first time he revealed this Passover lamb theme to humanity. But he formed it before the foundation of time. Revelation 13.8 The blood of a Passover lamb with Israel was placed with a a hyssop brush on the door. And then it would fall down to the threshold. As you know, everybody knows this. Where's my pen? Everybody knows this. I have blood sprinkled here. It falls down here under the threshold. And it is put on the left and the right on the doorposts. So I have blood, 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 blood. As everybody knows, we all go, wow, it's in the form of a crucifix. And we all cheer. And then no one ever asks, why is it like this? Why isn't it in a triangle? Why isn't it in a rhombus? How come this is how it has to be done? What's this mean? Blood, 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 blood. Why is there four bloods? Some people will argue say there's only three, but that's Exodus 12, 23 through 24. It's an ordinance forever to do this for Israel. They, st- they don't do it as much as they should anymore, but they- it's still being done. It's forever. Why is it forever? How long is forever? Do we all have to do it? What's forever mean? And when it happened in Exodus 12, it became evidence that that particular household had killed a lamb and eaten a lamb. And you know that it is to be brought into the household and kept in the house for four days. And what is it? What's done to it? I believe it was named... And I am proposing, obviously, this all returns to Genesis 3.21 and Genesis 4.4 and Hebrews 11.4. Abel's reproduction, if you will, his replication of Genesis 3.21, his memorializing of Genesis 3.21. Connect communion to that. It's important to note that Genesis 12.29 through 30, when the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, that's Christ himself, came at midnight... On that day in Egypt, the firstborn of every Egyptian household, those who had no blood, were struck dead. Not a house where there was not one dead, it says in Exodus 12, 20 through 30. And the firstborn of the animals were also dead. And the captives in the dungeons were dead, Exodus 12, 29. And after that happened, there was a great cry in Egypt. Cry. Sorrow, weeping. Don't leave out that component of the slaying of innocent lambs. It's a day of great sorrow. So when Adam and Eve had those lambs slain for them, that was a day of great crying. When they're killing the lambs, Genesis 4-4, that is a day of great crying. See, that crying is an element that separates Passover. And and it separates Abel's sacrifice from Cain's sacrifice. And I've often tried to imagine the great sorrow of Adam and Eve, as I just uh, tried to explain. 
when their fig leaves were not respected and it took the death of an animal that they knew and named to be respected. I think that was a day of great sorrow. The sorrow, the groaning that Christ has in him, he is a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53.3, acquainted with grief, it says. God is acquainted with grief. God's heart grieves, is filled with grief, Genesis 6.6. David had a heart filled with grief. Adam, I believe, had a heart filled with grief. If you have a heart like God, then you have an understanding of the sorrow that is in this world now. Okay, I should start the lecture. What's that? I can't. I've only got two beholds in me a day because of the damage it does to my feet. You did make something for me? Oh, oh okay. So I have to participate. Behold. Huh? Oh, that's very cool. That is very cool. I do look like a penguin. That is very cool. How come it took you so long to pull that off? You should have had it exactly on time. Oh, okay. I noticed you were quite surreptitious in your absence, so pretending to grab the baby. I should have known better. I said something, I'll finish with this. Yay, I got five more pages so I don't have to, I'll just tear them out and paste them to the front next week. I ask questions like this. Uh, I said, uh, what is infinity uh, divided by infinity and infinity minus infinity? Uh, This is, uh, I'll help you, it's indeterminate. Both of these are called indeterminate forms. And in these indeterminate forms or events, there is a conflicting interest and it's not apparent which one will prevail. So they're not definable. It's considered not defined. It's called infinity paradoxes. And that fascinates me because that's indeterminacy. I can't determine it. That means uncertainty. Uncertainty means probability. And and all of those speak of one thing. Uncertainty speaks of what? Freedom. See, probability is the cornerstone of quantum physics. Quantum theory states that there are only probabilities with respect to outcomes. There's never any certainty. You can never have certainty. Why not? Because there's freedom in the creation. At the quantum level, there are high degrees of probability, but there's never certainty. That's why I love quantum physics. Somehow we live in uncertainty that has high levels of probability and low levels of probability. Infinity is a paradox. It's not definable. It cannot be defined mathematically. Why did the infinite omniscient God place indeterminacy in his creation? How did he do it? What's the conflict that I'm discussing here, right? Let me go back a page because I think I wrote it down. This is omniscience and free will. Which one will prevail? The bottom infinity or the top infinity? They have infinity to the power of infinity. They have negative infinity to the power of positive infinity. They have all these indeterminacies. Which one prevails in this equation? Which infinity wins in infinity minus infinity? See, there is no, there's nothing accomplished here, in other words. That, that's the way our universe is created. Which shall dominate is the question in these particular, it's called the hospital. It's a guy named, Hosp- I should write, Hopital. We say hospital in the United States, but it's hopital. It's his rule. Mathematics. Does a situation exist where both are true? Where in the Bible do you find something where both are true? 
And, and I would urge you to try to solve the two questions. Why did God, an infinite, omniscient God, place this uncertainty, this in, indeterminacy into his, his creation when he's omniscient? How did he do it? And I would urge you to solve, again, as much as you can. Call it a homework assignment test on Friday. Uh, I said in Lecture 84 that Adam reasoned through the lie of Satan and that Adam had the basics of the solution to the lie of Satan and Adam thought like God. Adam, as did David, knew the heart of God. That's what got him through it. Satan also knew the heart of God. David knew that God would save his dead child. 2 Samuel 12, 22 through 23, his child died. David knew that God would save the child. Adam knew that God would save his dead wife. Both knew the heart of God. Both knew that God loved them, Adam and David. Satan, though, also knew, as did Judas Satan, right? That explains why Satan Judas had the farewell kiss in the garden, Matthew 26, 49. The difference, obviously, that Adam and David relied on the love and mercy of God to save them. They relied on the sorrow of God, if you will, the strength of God. They said that this, they thought that the sorrow of God, the love of, the, of God was his strength. Why he, why he saves is his strength. Whereas Satan and his angels rely on the sorrow of God as a weakness to be exploited. And that's something we'll just, I don't have to write four pages now. We'll talk about that next week. See you later.